Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. The board of directors are negotiating with the press. The applications for jobs are coming in and the public are being sold radio sets. The stars are aligning for the birth of the BBC. But in the month before launch, pre-BBC broadcasts continue and our intrepid broadcasters keep on innovating. We've had music, we've had the King's Cup air race, we've even had a boxing commentary that lasted about a minute before it was a knockout. What else will our gramophone jockeys present to our ears? This time, the first radio drama and the first radio comedy in the last few weeks before the British Broadcasting Company launches. Plus, guiding us through it, cultural historian and writer Alan Stafford. And you'll hear a clip or two of comedians of the day back in the early 1920s. And... We will go back even further and play you possibly the oldest clip you have ever heard. 1890, a recording 130 years old. But back in the 1920s, we're still dwelling in pre-BBC territory for another couple of episodes as we seek to inform, educate and this week especially to tune in on the entertain part here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello, is this thing on? Yes, this episode, it's a subject close to my heart. Comedy! The first comedians, the first entertainers, the first storytellers, the first turns, whatever you want to call them. We will look at who were the very first of these modern jesters. The first Brits to take their acts from the musicals and theatres to the broadcast studio. And we're even going to hear a clip of one of them. And dramas, the very first time that plays came to the radio. So welcome to this. My name is Paul Carenza and a special welcome if you've joined us fairly recently. I know some joined at the Wreath episode. I don't know if you're ploughing through from here or if you've gone back and listened to where we are so far. But I would try to catch you up as we go. It's worth adding this podcast has nothing to do with the BBC. In fact, I was on the verge of pitching this to BBC Sounds when I had the idea for it. And then I thought, yeah, I'll just do it myself. Because, you know, why work paid when you can be your own boss and it costs you far more? Well, the main reason, I suppose, was also the big Melba centenary at the time was coming up. And I thought, I'm never going to pitch this and produce this and make it in time via BBC Sounds or anyone else. But I can rattle this off here myself in my wardrobe studio. Anyway, before we dive into 1922, quick bit of correspondence. I've been in touch with a chap called Lorne Clark of earlywireless.com. It's a marvellous website. I commend it to you. Lorne's website focuses on the early radio sets themselves, all of that era and before, in fact. Crystal sets, amplifiers, loudspeakers. If you go to earlywireless.com slash museum, uh, he has got a collection of brilliant artefacts uh, from 1922, 24, 35. I'm looking now at his General Electric Company headphones and box from 1922. Even here, um, we've got a Marconi Cahira with a mahogany base. Oh, look at that from 1915. Wow. And Lorne said to me, I also have an Edison Fireside phonograph and over a hundred wax and celluloid cylinders to play on it. Recently, he said, I've had a new two-minute wax cylinder made for me. It is of Martin Lanfried, the trumpeter, playing the very same bugle that he sounded at the charge of the Light Brigade in 1854. The recording was made in 1890, and it's remarkably clear. Would you like to hear it? Here it is. I am Trumpeter Lanfried, one of the surviving trumpeters of charge Light Brigade I am now going to sound the bugle that was sounded at Waterloo 
charge has resounded at Balaclava on that very same bugle. On the 25th of October, 1854. Record made at Edison House, Northumberland Avenue, London, August the 2nd, 1890. something. Recording made in 1890. Lorne Clark has also said that we do need to mention the British Vintage Wireless Society. Give them a hello. A lot of great preservation work going on there, both of actual kit and also just preserving the sheer know-how and engineering brilliance. So a big hello and hurrah for all at the British Vintage Wireless Society. Lord Clark has written a marvellous book as well called Shareholders of the British Broadcasting Company. It's a huge collection of every single person and company that was a shareholder in that early marvellous company. There's also background information on his marvellous wireless sets in his book, Shareholders of the British Broadcasting Company, available from earlywireless.com. I commend it to you. Now, from 1890 then to 1922. Late October, to be precise. But let's get even more precise than that. Can you guess what big broadcasting moment happened on October the 16th, 1922? Max Bygraves was born. I bet you didn't see that coming. As far as I can tell, he is the broadcaster who's born as near to the BBC as anyone. So if you're wondering how old the BBC is, it's Max Bygraves years old. Uh, or Joan Turner. She's actually even a little bit closer. She was the woman's answer to Harry Seacombe. Uh, she's about as close as you can get to when the BBC is born. Also in 1922, you get uh, Michael Benteen. He was born. Raymond Baxter, Dennis Norden, Stan Lee, Doris Day, Christopher Lee, uh, Hattie Jakes, Denham Elliott. Love Denham Elliott, don't you? Uh, Molly Sugden. All 1922 births along with the BBC. But I like to think of Auntie Beeb as almost exactly Max Bygraves years old. But the next day, October the 17th, that's where our story kicks off this week. And that was the day of the first dramatic play on British radio, or at least part of one. There's been a lot of drama behind the scenes over the last few episodes, but like so many of these firsts, this comes from that hut in Rittle in Essex and from the mind of Peter Eckersley. And we were indeed not only pioneers in uh, transmission, we were pioneers in programme. Here's Eckersley expert Tim Wonder. Eckersley just gets bolder and bolder. Yes, he starts the first ever radio quiz where you write in the answers. August 15th, 1922, garnering 160 replies. The first ever fan club, the first ever Lonely Hearts Club, the first ever play. We in fact did the first radio play that I suppose was ever broadcast. We chose that bit out of Cyrano de Bergerac. Where, um, where Cyrano makes love to Roxanne in the balcony as a deputy for the young man, remember? And, of course, that is played on the stage in the dark, so we thought that was pretty well suitable for sound broadcasting. Eckersley and his colleagues rehearse in their accommodation in the village, where a few of the engineers rented rooms from some elderly spinster sisters. For the cast, Eckersley's wife's friend's husband was Ben Travers, an emerging playwright of the day. 
had plays that had been performed in the West End that summer. So Ben was roped in, along with his sister Agnes, known as Uggy, and she was just out of RADA. Of course, naturally I played Cyrano. And Eckersley's Marconi colleague Rolls Wynne, he completes the quartet. He'd go on to be BBC chief engineer after Eckersley. And Rolls Wynne was in charge of sound effects, rustling leaves and so on. The ancestor, surely, of the BBC sound effect library. So the four of them, they would sit around the table to rehearse, scripts in hand, passing a spoon to each other to stand in for the microphone. Now, Eckersley, if you haven't already spotted it, is destined to become quite a ladies' man to his downfall, in fact. More of that at the end of this series. And as he acted and rehearsed alongside Uggy Travers, he flirted throughout. Oh, I love you! And he'd throw out his hand to her, but it was still holding the spoon slash microphone. Now, as the first radio script, those notes and styles that we may later be familiar with on scripts, they start here. Directions like voice raised, voice discreet and voice passionate were part of the typed scripts. They performed it for broadcast live, of course, sitting around a table in the Rittle Hut, passing the microphone, not a spoon, between them without dropping it. Apparently, Uggy Travers, the first radio actress, let's not forget, she held the microphone in front of and below her mouth, a little like a teacup, while Eckersley as Serrano de Bergerac was one of those radio actors who would wildly gesticulate to get into character. Two days after that dramatic performance, entirely unrelated, the government collapses. Tory MPs withdraw from the coalition with, as we heard last episode, John Reith right there at the heart of it as a secretary to some of those MPs. David Lloyd George resigns as PM, sparking a general election. And the race is on then to launch the BBC, possibly in time, to cover that election. But Arthur Burroughs in London, he doesn't have his eye on election night special at this point, but on entertainment for his 2LO audience. The day after the government collapse, October the 20th, pretty much the first comedian is broadcast. Now, I say pretty much the first because at those summer concerts and the like, you may remember from a few episodes ago, we did list a few performers. The wireless exhibition, for example, on September the 30th had Mr. Charles Corrie, entertainer. And on October the 2nd, William Parkin, humorist. Herbert Dixon, another humorist. History has largely, sadly, forgotten not only their act, but who they were. I've googled, I've asked Jeeves, I've even altavisted, and I can find nothing on any of them. But we do know a bit more about the act on October the 20th. And arguably, October the 20th is the first moment we know of of a broadcast comedian that's more studio-based, not part of a fuller programme of a broadcast concert. So as a comedian myself, I'm curious to know, what style was that first radio comedian? One-liners? Anecdotes? Observational? Satire? Not likely. Remember, the broadcasters are still just negotiating with Parliament as this happens. No, the first broadcast comedian, or at least pretty much the first, is character comedy. Really a Victoria Wood of her day. It's an actress called Helena Millay. She's playing Cockney character, our Lizzie. And I wish we could hear it. Well, we can. Hello, we duck. Here I am again with me old string bags. Andy things string bags, ain't they? I lost two pounds of beans last week. Been and dropped through the holes. <laughs> Talk about the long, long trail. Now, this, of course, isn't the broadcast version from 1922. There were no recordings, but she did commit her act to gramophone record, and this is from a year or so later. 
Our Lizzie will make her BBC debut on November the 21st, 1922, just about a month from this 2.0 performance. But yes, she's one of the very few comedians to take to the airwaves before the BBC begins. And here her piece is called A Cockney Fragment from Life, written by Millay herself. Ian, I kids the limit. When we was having tea the other day, there was our Bert drinking his tea out of the saucer. Oh, uh, but I says I'm ashamed of you, drinking your tea out of the saucer. Well, Mar, he says, if I drink it out of the cup, the blinking spoon goes up me nose. She was a proper Shakespearean actress, too. We know that she excelled as Katerina in Taming of the Shrew. I was looking for a golden clip like this. I scoured the internet and then I thought to ask my old writing pal, Alan Stafford. He's written books on the history of comedy and he knows his stuff. But he said, I can't help you. I haven't got any recordings of our Lizzie either. Until he checked his loft. Around about the 50th anniversary of radio, uh, I bought a magazine written by Dennis Gifford, who is... um, knows everything uh, called uh, 50 years of radio comedy and this was my first introduction to it he's the author of entertainment history books like it's friday it's crackerjack and too naked for the nazis the true story of wilson keppel and betty this is alan stafford bbc radio started playing shows that i didn't know anything about like bandwagon and so i was listening to these i was i was reading about these and then i started collecting 78 records and of course apart from all the old comedy songs and things like that a lot of the comedians that appeared on radio also put their routines either you know double acts or just um solo routines or even sketches on records. So if you're talking about an era when there wasn't um, the radio archive, it was a good way to hear what kind of material they were doing and how it went over. And and I know a lot of looking for the clips to to use for this podcast, a lot of the clips we're finding are from old records rather than actual recordings from the radio itself so all we can hope for is that those artists who who have delivered something for the radio have also made a nice record of it so that's where we get some of these classics from isn't it so long that be good and if you can't mind no one sees you in the mid-1920s she was hugely popular from the broadcaster in may 1923 her cockney portrayals have radiated through the microphone's delightful humour. In the broadcasting studio, her artistry creates havoc with the members of the orchestra, the official announcers and the engineers. They double up with laughter. The usually tranquil precincts of the curtained radio room at 2LO re-echo with mirth that provides a reliable suggestion of the effects of Helena Millet's humour on the distant listener in. And let me tell you, us comedians, we dream of reviews like that. Helena Millet was overlooked in later years. Very sadly, she was waiting for the phone to ring. The big money days eluded her. She was paid just a guinea a time to write the script and perform it. By the time the fees went up, other performers were in favour instead. I find myself thinking back to the Edinburgh Festival and it and you don't have to go back that far, maybe a decade or so, when my impression always was that the kind of majority of comedy men at Edinburgh were doing stand-up and the majority of comedy women at Edinburgh were doing character comedy. Uh, That's how it seemed, you know, when I was Mm. uh, looking through the programme. And actually, the early days of the BBC, 
Helena Millay and our Lizzie doing a, a Cockney character. You also uh, later you have someone called Suzette Tarry, um, uh, again um, a more or less a, a Cockney char. Later on, you have uh, Jen de Cassilis doing uh, Mrs. Feather, who is a, a slightly posher character, but a very feather-brained um, uh, woman. And then uh, Mabel Constanduras. Now she was very versatile because she did more or less a whole family. She did, created the Buggins family. There was mother, there were the, the children, there was uh, a very grumpy old grandma. And then later she got a, a Michael Hogan who worked with her and did some of the male members of the family. But it, yes, it, it was that kind of character comedy and that seemed to be something that that most of the, um, most of the female performers in that, those early days did. It seems um, one area of broadcasting that quite early on had more of a gender balance, it seems, because it, uh, the, the announcers, entirely men in the early years, newsreaders certainly for a very, very long time. You did start to get there with John Reith. He was rather keen on getting women on the air talking. They had Women's Hour very early on in the first year or so, I think. But comedy does seem to be one of those areas that it does seem to be much more just if you're good enough, you're on. Yes, I think so. And and most of these, I mean, I think that all the comedians I was just talking about did create their own material. It wasn't a, a matter; it was written for them. They, um, yeah, and obviously, a, generally a, a fresh script every, every time. Certainly, unless you were taking it round the country. Well, we're going to spend a while in the twenties, probably another. Uh, I don't know, five, six series, and then into the 30s. So we'll have to get you back. And then ultimately, I mean, it will be a good 30 years of the podcast itself to get before we get to Crackerjack. But, uh, <laughs> but you've, you've written about that, haven't you? My path to writing books, which is a miracle. I'm, I'm a gag writer. I mean, the, the, the fact, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I write single sentences. The, the fact that I could actually write a book was astonishing. But I've done a number <laughs> of um, radio documentaries about nostalgic comedy. And I've done something about... Wilson, Keppel and Betty, who um, not a great radio act because they were never said a word and uh, did this Egyptian sand dancing act. Uh, I'd done a radio documentary, but I'd, I'd uncovered lots of stuff about them and I carried on and wrote the book. And then I was looking around for other subjects and Crackerjack, well, it's something I, I remembered from my youth. Other than the old Crackerjack annual, there was nothing really out there. And um, Crackerjack ran from 19... 19- 50 to 1984 so we thought except it's back now but uh, i'm sure entirely down to you entirely down to your book that's why they brought it back isn't it so well done you we will of course have to get alan back next series to talk to us about 1923's new broadcast comedians the ones who weren't the first but they were the first to capitalize on the medium and become huge famous mcintyrian jimmy carrie and peter kayish kind of famous Names like John Henry, Tommy Handley, Murgatroyd and Winterbottom. To be continued. But we've looked at 2LO's comedy and 2MT's drama and quiz shows and wild antics. So what of Britain's third pre-BBC radio station, 2ZY Manchester? Well, at this point, they were really still in test mode. But their early announcer, Victor Smythe, did very soon become 2ZY's head of drama. met an old friend of mine in a very famous drinking house in Manchester who was going out to Metropolitan because of Trafford Park to what he said was one of the most marvellous things in the world and he took me out there uh, to see uh, um, this radio business at work 
this wireless thing, as he called it. Uh, that is how I went out there in November. I think I'm right in saying November the 28th, 1922. I think I'm right in saying 823 repertory companies throughout Yorkshire and Lancashire. And I started to go round and meet people and see their shows. And uh, eventually I got together the first repertory company in Great Britain, the 2ZY Repertory Company. And I had 28 uh, uh, men and women of the nicest people I ever wished to meet. And that's how we, uh, we really got down to playing parts. Otherwise, I played five parts in the first place. It wasn't all wholesome, though. As the announcer, Victor Smythe, would say at the end of each broadcast, Good night, everybody. Good night. But he was heard on one occasion to then turn to the engineers and say, Pull that bloody switch out. There were complaints. Uh, I had to go out and address uh, various local groups, uh, radio listening groups, uh, which was organised by the uh, radio retailers. And uh, it was there I came across the criticism that a man who shut his shop at eight and got home at half past eight found it very difficult to know what was going on. So I developed a simple brochure in which I summarised in, in almost childish language what had taken place from the time the curtain went up until the, the curtain came down in each scene. Then I went out with my bag and sold space to uh, the um, radio retail shops in Manchester until I'd paid for the uh, cost of the brochure. And um, I may say that we made a profit, which was a shocking thing then because we weren't supposed to have anything to do with money, as you probably know. As we career towards the BBC's launch, in the wider picture at this point, the nation is still getting used to what broadcasting is or will be. There is ample evidence that many in this country do not understand what broadcasting is. A week after Eckersley's Serrano, a few days after our Lizzie on 2LO, the following summary of the scheme should be useful. On October the 25th, the Daily Mail writes, It is possible by means of wireless telephony to send speech and music into space in a form which permits of its being received and made loudly and clearly audible to anybody within range of the sending station provided they have suitable receiving apparatus. Stations in London and Manchester will be ready to begin work, it is expected, sometime in November. For the exploitation of this scheme, the British Broadcasting Company is in course of formation. Each broadcasting station will have its own orchestra and musical director. On any weekday between 5 and 11pm, and on Sundays throughout the day and evening, it will be possible for anybody owning a suitable installed receiver to hear whatever is going on by the turn of a switch or two. When conversation lags, when guests need entertaining, when dinner is overdue, when the children cannot amuse themselves, when it is too wet to go out, when you are tired of reading or working or doing nothing, you can turn on the wireless. The next day, press talks begin. See our earlier episode, Inform, Educate, Entertain, for details on the press negotiations. But in brief, the press say, you broadcasters pay us for our bulletins. The printed press must be protected from this young upstart. One final burst of entertainment before October ends, though. On October the 31st, 2ZY Manchester hosts another concert. You might remember they hosted a few that summer, and this is their biggest yet. It's organised by station director Kenneth Wright, with, just like at the Chelmsford Works back in episode 3, staff members from the works performing. Douglas Black on violin, the baritone of Sidney Nightingale, mezzo-soprano Louisa Benny, and the boss Kenneth Wright himself on piano. Wright and Nightingale could also be heard on the children's programme as Uncle Humpty Dumpty and the Sandman. There was, as at 2LO, lots of roping in and doubling up. Captain H.G. Bell would read the news and he'd double up in another job. He would deliver talks as the enigmatic Mr. X, which was a handy nickname that anyone could then take when he was away doing, for example, his actual desk job that he was hired to do. 
Like all the radio pioneers, Kenneth Wright was quite used to ushering in front of the microphone anyone they could find in the building. Back in May of 1922, when 2ZY's first transmissions were being tested, they'd remembered to book the singers, well, they'd find some volunteers, but it was just before showtime when they'd realised they didn't have a pianist. So the engineers in charge of that test broadcast ran around the electrical plant and high and low they searched until they found someone who could play the piano. That someone was Kenneth Wright. He was ordered away from his desk to work overtime, in other words, play piano in this small room, and ultimately, that tied Kenneth Wright to radio, becoming musical director, then station director, and ultimately, assistant musical director of the entire BBC. But really, the first entertainer of the wireless in Britain was Peter Eckersley. As we heard way back in episode six, he was the one to discover that British radio didn't have to be serious. Long before Cyrano de Bergerac, he was the one who cut loose, didn't care about anything but having a good time on the air. And he's the ancestor of any DJ today who does likewise and makes it look effortless. Ultimately, those first four jobs being advertised by the BBC, director of programmes, general manager, secretary and chief engineer, Eckersley will get one of those. He will be the first chief engineer of the BBC, although not at first. I was longing to be asked, but I heard, we heard, that um, somebody else had been appointed. And we, sitting in Rittle, said, typical, typical of head office, the typical neglecting genius. However, luckily, the man who was offered the job turned it down. Now, although the chief engineer role of the BBC will largely keep Eckersley off the air, he does come back at least once a year during his tenure to lampoon the boss at the BBC Christmas show. You can't keep a broadcaster like Eckersley down. But to get to that point, we need Eckersley to become chief engineer. We need Burroughs to switch from boss of Marconi's 2LO to being director of programmes at the BBC. We need the best of the best to build a transmitter for this new broadcasting company. Here's historian Tim Wonder on how we would need some familiar names for the BBC to launch. Uh, they would take over the 2LO station in Marconi House in the Strand as their first transmitter. Arthur Burroughs jumped ship and became their first programme director, in fact, their first employee to run the new BBC station. Captain Round and Mr. Ditcham from Marconi from the Melbourne Broadcast, they built them a new transmitter. Mm. And you suddenly see that all the waves come backwards and forwards. Ah, yes, Ditcham and Round. You remember them from episode two, How Could We Forget? They come back on the scene. The star engineers from the first broadcast in Chelmsford of 1920, they're throughout the key moments of pre-broadcasting wireless, sending messages across the Atlantic. They are back to help boost 2LO's signal. To prepare the London station to become the BBC, they need to up their game and their power. 2LO's 100-watt T-chest transmitter is replaced by a 1.5-kilowatt transmitter. Designed by Captain Round, installed by Ditcham and Round, it's their biggest transmitter yet. For the 2LO boss, Arthur Burroughs. Our occasional broadcasts from Marconi House had only an initial range of about 30 to 40 miles. Later, the range was increased, and we soon gained an audience of perhaps 30,000 listeners. But Eckersley doesn't join until early 1923, even when the BBC launches. He is still in that field in Essex, still an outsider. Eckersley, of course, hears the BBC and says, oh, this is just a target for my derision and, and absolutely slaughters it. But I guess the writing is on the wall. Next time, the final preparations are made for the BBC's big launch. We are nearly there, folks. Thank you for your patience. We are telling this the slow way.
But if we didn't, you'd miss out on R. Lizzie and Cyrano de Bergerac and Alan Stafford. If you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash paulcarenza or coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash paulcarenza, are ways that you could help keep us going. We are ever so grateful for those who have. We're delighted to welcome Russ A to the Patreon squad. Thank you, Russ. Your surname is anonymized for GDPR reasons or something. Advanced writings and videos and things like that will be coming his way and your way as well if you would like to join up there. And if I've not told you lately, the plan is for this podcast, another three or four more episodes should bring us to the end of season one, which is uh, when the BBC will have been launched. After that, there's going to be a bit of a gap in the podcast between seasons as I go and research and compile all the good stuff to bring you season two. And that will be the BBC's first year of 1923. But in that gap between season one and season two of the podcast, I've got a few specials lined up. So do stay subscribed, whatever you do, because you don't want to miss the audio gold that we have coming your way. Well, audio silver, bronze, it's tin. All right, it's tin. Now, you may notice a change to the frequency of these episodes lately as well. This used to be weekly to begin with. But as I've been digging more and more, and I have been digging more and more, I realise that to keep it weekly or even fortnightly, it runs the risk of kind of rushing these episodes. And I think you know by now, we are thorough. We want these episodes to stand the test of time. We are less a podcast, more a museum tour guide. That's what we really are. And if we rush, get the wrong facts, then your headset could send you to the Aztec zone of the museum instead of the industrial zone. I was trying to think of museum areas. I ended up at the Crystal Maze. Goes to show, I'm always thinking of broadcasting here. My point is that if we have slightly longer gaps between the episodes, then apologies for that. But trust me, I'm not resting on any laurels. I'm constantly, literally seven days a week, researching, writing, uh, recording, thinking about, considering, editing, researching some more and repeat. I don't want to specify an exact frequency of when the next episode's going to be, but they will be with you as soon as they are ready. Trust me. Deal? Deal. Probably every two or three weeks-ish. Shouldn't be longer than that. Thank you for bearing with us, me, this. But when we are off air, you can always find us on Twitter and Facebook at BB Century, and you'll find pics and comments, and you can ask some questions and things. And indeed, on the break between seasons, trust me, I will still be immersing myself in all of this. I've got the novelization that I'm trying to write at the minute of the early broadcasting moments, the TV drama pilot, uncommissioned as yet. So, you know, if you're a drama producer or, or a drama commissioner listening to this, get in touch. I have got a script nearly good to go. We can film it socially distanced, I reckon, this origin story, because there's no fighting or kissing. So it's mostly people alone in rooms with microphones. Easy to film that. You know this story. It's a great one. So uh, let's make the BBC history. That sounds wrong. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are public domain as far as we know. If you think differently, ask us to remove your clip by all means, and we will do just that and doff our cap towards you. Stay informed, educated and entertained, and join us next time for the eve of the British Broadcasting Company, here on the British Broadcasting Century.